Welcome to the Gamer's Tavern. I've gone and got myself sick again, so no big intro this week, but I do have a little bit of bad news. Animation Celebration in Galveston has been cancelled. So your next chance to see Ross and I at a convention will be at Gen Con in August. But that's enough of that. Let's get to the show. Grab a drink from the bar and take a seat at the table in the corner, and we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. DriveThruRPG is the place to go to purchase digital copies of your favorite games. Dungeons & Dragons, Shadowrun, World of Darkness, Savage Worlds, Numenera, Fate, and so many more. Do you long for the feel of actual paper in your hands? Well, they sell physical products too. Just go to GamersTavern.org and click on the link in the show notes to find your favorite games and support the podcast with every purchase. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Gamers Tavern podcast. I'm your host, Ross Watson. And I'm Daryl Mont Jr. And tonight we have with us a couple of uh, good friends of mine who also happen to be uh, really good game masters to run under in a convention. Uh, that would be Mr. Robert Dorf. Hello. And Mr. Bill Keys. How you doing? On behalf of Daryl and myself, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Here being, of course, my house, but also, in theory, on your show. <laughs> no breaking the fourth wall. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to pay for it. <laughs> Tonight's topic is about running and playing games at a convention. It is the second part of our Convention Survival Guide series, um, which is weird saying series because we're pretty laid back on this podcast. It's like this is extremely organized for us just to even have a series. So. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the only other one we've done is the campaign setting, which I think we've only done two of those so far, too. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, you know, we're, we're two for two so far. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, one of the things we do whenever we bring on guests on the show is we ask them about their gaming character sheet. Uh, this basically just tells the listeners who you are and where they might know you from and where they can find you on the internet, things of that nature. Since Bill's done this before, I'm going to give it to Bill and say, Bill, what is your gaming character sheet? Okay. Um, well, charisma was my dump stat. Um, <laughs> and also wisdom and intelligence, strength, dexterity, and constitution. All my dump stats. <laughs> but you um, should see the resource points he's built up. <laughs> he's a min-maxer. A min-maxer. Mostly a minner, really. <laughs> if we're being honest. Now let's see. I uh, I've uh, worked for Hero Games as the uh, art director and layout designer for several books. Uh, the first one being Lucha Libre Hero, yay! Uh, my, which is my favorite book to have worked on ever. And I've also done uh, the Hero System Equipment Guide, the Bestiary, uh, the Advanced Players Guide, the Basic Players Guide, and a few others that I can't think of off the top of my head. I also worked for Blackworm Games. Um, I did uh, Kaze 5, the layout and art design for Kaze 5. Fantastic book. Thank you. It, it was really Absolutely. fun book to work on. I, I'm not saying that just because I have a credit in it either. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it really is a good book. Well, I do understand that anyone with a credit in Kaze 5 has a tremendous set of private parts. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> that is actually a true story. Wow. It's not a rumor. That's, that's actually true. Now, Robert, did you know we brought you on for the convention episode, not the one we had Bill on for graphic content, right? <laughs> I, you know, I, I thought it was being all mild and stuff. Okay. <laughs> that, that is pretty mild for Robert, actually. 
Uh, oh, that's Bill saying that. Dear yeah. God, what have I gotten myself into? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that's me. Oh, and I'm currently no, working. No, 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 no. You've uh, got to. You have got to mention your steampunk set. Yes, that's right. I was about to. I I just remembered. I've been working on it actually for the last <laughs> couple of months, and and for some reason I totally forgot it. I'm working. <laughs> I uh, wrote a book called The Widening Gyre, which is a steampunk source book for the hero system, and I'm conver- currently converting it slash rewriting it for Savage Worlds. And I've got to say, um, at Genghis Khan, Bill ran a game for this. So this is one of the reasons why he's on the show tonight. He ran a game for us at the convention that was one of the most fun convention games I've ever, ever played. It was just brilliant. Thank you. And yeah, if I had to tell people like what the Widening Gyre is, I would say the best thing I can say about it, uh, in a short version is to say it's basically Shadowrun, but steampunk instead of cyberpunk. Sold. Yes. Yes. That's actually kind of a cool description. Thank you. <laughs> Cover quote. <laughs> and also with, also with a little bit of influence from League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and it's oh, just absolutely. an astonishing, amazing, fantastic setting. And anyone listening to this should genuinely go out and buy it right now, and you'll be very happy. Either the Champions version or, when it comes out, the Savage Worlds. All right. Genuine pitch. Thanks, Robert. Um, I'll send you your money tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Robert, uh, now is a good time to ask him what his gaming character sheet is. Well, generally speaking, I'm chaotic tired, uh, <laughs> verging, verging on chaotic, you know, non-existent. I have been gaming since 1976, uh, which, you know, makes me very, very, very old. Uh, and in recent years, I have contributed to Champions Complete. Uh, you will find a little credit for me in many, many, many of the Hero System 6 edition books. I was one of the proofreaders on Scott Benny's Gestalt, which I consider to be one of the absolute best superhero settings I've ever seen. That Agreed. is an awesome setting. It is fantastic. And, of course, on Kaze 5, uh, I've been lucky enough to contribute a little bit, including helping out with the glossary. Uh, and that is one of Mike Serbrook's products, and he is coming out with a new edition of that very soon, and it is incredibly worth getting. And that's, you know, pretty much it for stuff I've contributed to. Oh, and I've done some articles and things. Uh, in addition to that, I have been GMing at conventions, which is probably why I was invited here, <laughs> since about 1988, I would say. Well- we just turned it on, and you sort of wandered into the show. I don't, I don't really know how you got here. <laughs> that happens here, to me a lot. That really we'll does. Just, we'll, we'll say that's that's accurate, though. That yes. Yeah. We, so since since 1988, I've been running games at conventions on a very regular basis. I have run uh, Hero System. I've run GURPS. I've run Champions before there was a Hero System as such. I've you know run D and D, Pathfinder, Shadowrun. This, that, and the other. Rifts. Pretty much, you name it, and I've either run it or played it. And that's you know, I, I've got to say, knowing Robert, as I do, I would pay money to see Robert run Rifts. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually a very good game. <laughs> oh, I know. It, it, if, if you're running it, it's going to be a good game. There's, there's no question of that. But, but wow, I'm just trying to wrap my head around you running Rifts. It would just be awesome. So, yeah. Do you have a web page of any kind, Robert, that people could find out more about you? 
Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's but, hiding from the FBI currently. So. But anyone interested in finding me can certainly find me on Facebook. And the only... Under Robert Dorf. And if you are really interested in you know things like nerd weightlifting, feel free to Google the Fat Uncles, and I think our podcast page is probably still out there somewhere. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I didn't know you had a podcast. Uh, at one point. Well, I, I do want to say... Uh... That if, if even if you are anonymous, that is it is it is good to have you on board. And uh, are oh, you, you an elf? <laughs> um, not in so far as I am aware. Okay. <laughs> well, let's talk about what we've been playing lately. That's kind of the next thing we go into here. So, um, let's start with Daryl. Daryl, what have you been playing lately? I have actually played a role playing game. What? <laughs> I know. I found time. Um, actually, it was in uh, the RPG Net chat room uh, run by uh, Dan, which is he's a really cool guy. That's where a lot of the Q and A's go on. It's actually where I met Ross. Don, Dan Davenport time. is who we're talking yes, about. Davin, I couldn't remember his last name, but he's a prolific reviewer of RPGs and blah blah. But uh, he runs the RPG Net chat room, and he had a pickup game of a. I want to say over the edge is the name of it. It's a really rules light. Supposed to be a superhero system, but the way Dan, I, I've got to get him to do a one-shot game table because of the way he does settings and adventures. He went around and each of us named off, in turn, five different random themes. I went first. I said, computer hacking. Next person says, ancient artifacts. Next person says, trains. The next person says, uh, the Pacific Northwest. And it just goes around until each player has provided five things. And then, like... Not even 10 minutes later, he comes up with like five paragraphs describing this world that was just awesomely cool. And he did it that fast. And we started playing that game over IRC. It was been a lot of fun. We're only about halfway through. We're picking it up again this weekend. So now that would be something that would be fun. Although I'm not sure I would want Bill necessarily to be one of the guys kicking in on that because <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, I've already come up with five things just in the last. <laughs> no, seriously, I, I think that would be cool with Bill. I'm sure. So, yeah. what else, Daryl? What else have you been playing? Uh, that's actually all I've had time for recently because I've been. Uh, I, I've talked about this a little bit on Twitter, and by the time you hear this, it'll either be official or not. Uh, I may be physically moving across town, which is yeah, pain in the ass. But the plus side, I will have an actual studio space. I will be able to set up the Gamers Tavern studio and have like a dedicated room just for audio production. It's going to be awesome. Absolutely awesome. Fantastic. Cool. Like a man cave, except with <laughs> audio. And, and shelves surrounded by books. And uh, I'm going to, if it works out, I'll start working on a lot of my little secret projects I keep teasing. Uh, those will be coming a lot sooner if that happens. All right. Uh, Mr. Dorf. Uh, what have you been playing lately? A lot of Skyrim. <laughs> <laughs> now, but also in addition, in addition to that, um, I've been playing again my Kalem Imperium setting, which is a setting that I'm now trying to adapt, hopefully to be released in Savage Worlds eventually. Uh, though I'm actually running it under Hero System right now. Uh, Kalem Imperium is a setting where you know, think of it in, in terms of the Roman Empire fighting with the empire of ancient China over the rights to the crystal forests of the moon, while in the background, the Aztecs 
step-by-step step, conquer and are in turn conquered by Mars. And that's pretty much Kalem Imperium. It's an awesome idea. I've read some of this stuff, and it is way beyond cool. Now, Robert, if correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you also do some uh, voice acting uh, related well, to yes. Skyrim? Uh, yeah, I, I have, in fact, contributed my voice to a very large number of mods in Skyrim. I love modding. Uh, I consider modding I consider modding to be an, an effective way to bridge the gap between uh, tabletop role-playing and computer gaming. It's in, in fact, it's a way that is more effective than MMOs for someone who is a long-time tabletop gamer to get that feeling of being able to contribute to and change and affect the world. You know, in an MMO, you can never really change the world. The MMO has to remain stable. Every quest has to be repeatable by 10,000 to 100,000 people. When you're playing by yourself, as you're playing as a single player in a computer game, again, it's nice, it's fun, but you're not really contributing to the world, you're just playing your one game. Modding is a kind of nice halfway point. You're able to create a mod, put it up there, let people play it, let people add it to their own worlds, and suddenly, you know, thousands of people are playing the adventure that you've designed, hearing your voice, enjoying the stories that you have to tell. Uh, right now, I'm contributing to Anna's NPCs for Skyrim, uh, which is a group of characters, most of them bard-related, uh, who can accompany your Dovahkiin as you have your adventures saving Skyrim. I have also contributed to Giscard's families of mods. For anyone who's actually a Skyrim geek enough to know who Giscard is, that's the engineeringguild.co.uk, and others. You know, I used to be a famous modder like you. <laughs> and then I took an arrow, arrow to the knee. <laughs> I, I think I think that you are you know much much more correctly referred to as a famous gamer, which, <laughs> as Darren Watts used to say, more people can say that they successfully made a living out of being an astronaut than made a living out of being a gamer. So <laughs> kind of proud of that, really. <laughs> it's it's you know it's a true fact, small industry. Uh, so thank you, Robert. Bill, what have you been playing lately? I've been playing a couple things. Um, I am running a game of Fantasy Hero that's been going on for... Uh, the campaign's been going on for about two years now, give or take. We took a, nice. a, a long break in the middle there because I got kind of burned out. But it's a very, very role-playing, in-depth, deep, deep, immersive game. And as the Game Master, it burns me out pretty quickly because it's so immersive, because there's so much prep and so much work to do. Are they adventuring on the bottom of the ocean? <laughs> because it's so deep and immersive. Yes. Now, I've told you about this game. This is this is the game where we're running three different groups of characters. One group is their noblemen, noble women who work directly for the baron of this small barony out in the middle of nowhere, dealing with issues that come up. And then they're also a group of um, guardsmen who live and work in the town, who basically, you know, they're the police of this small town. And then there's another group that are a group of monster hunters, basically murder hobos who go around from town to town <laughs> hunting dangerous, <laughs> hunting dangerous creatures and slaying them for cash. Um, and so we kind of bounce back and forth between these three groups. Um, that would burn me out pretty quick. I honestly. am totally going to list murder hobo on my resume as a profession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can make a pretty good living at it, but. Uh, as I've told my players, there's a, approximately 60% casualty rate expected 
<laughs> because, you know, that's what they do. They go out and they find the most dangerous, horrible things that you can imagine, and then they kill them, and then they expect payment for that. So, Bill's also been running the uh, Adventures game that I've been talking about on the podcast quite a bit. Yes, that's right. I'm running the, uh, the online uh, Skype-based uh, Avengers game. It's the Avengers 20 years in the future. And it's been it's been a lot of fun. They're currently in the microverse. They went to, they they found a message from the microverse that the uh, that Hank and we Jen, just met the Micronauts. Yeah, well the 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 heirs of the Micronauts. Yes, yes, <laughs> which is awesome. Yeah, <laughs> big props to Bill Mantlo. And uh, I'm also playing in a uh, a Rogue Trader game. Woohoo! So I awesome. Know Ross will be proud of that one. I am very proud of that. Yeah, and I just want to say, Ross, that the game master for that is uh, a huge fan of yours. He was like. Oh my God! You know Ross. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So there you have it. Thank you. Well, uh, it's it's nice to be uh, to be known, and uh, I'm very proud of Road Trader. But uh, let's see. Um, I've been playing the uh, the Arduin Grimoire game. Uh, is actually under a system called Arduin Bloody Arduin, and we've been playing that here at home with uh, my friend Monty uh, St. John, and that is a real uh, blast. I've had a lot of fun with that. Uh, let's see. Then, of course, there's the Avengers game that we just briefly talked about, and we're still doing the, uh, the game table, uh, the official Gamers Tavern game table, although last week we had to skip. Um, we had to have to take a, a quick break, and I think we're sort of regrouping, and, uh, it looks like we're gonna be trying something a little bit different next time. Hmm. So, there's that. Um. Awesome. And I've been playing an awful lot of Star Trek Online, because, uh, I'm horrible. <laughs> I'm a horrible, horrible person. I got sucked into an MMO, and what, it's like, like uh, three, four weeks straight since you got sucked into that. Well, they had a f- double XP weekend, and I got right to the end games content, and it's actually pretty fun zooming around in a spaceship, blowing things up. So, uh, there you go. Are there any nuclear vessels? Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about Tavern Tales. Tavern Tales is where we ask our guests to give us an idea or a story, uh, typically a story, of a really important or memorable die roll that they have uh, had in their careers as gamers. Uh, <laughs> let's start with Robert, because I think Bill's done this before. Robert, what is a memorable die roll that you've had? I'd like to actually do a set of memorable die rolls, because it did all fall <laughs> into the same game. So I was running a superhero game, uh, which I had poured a tremendous amount of time and energy and love and attention into. It had a tremendously in-depth background and a very complicated plot, and I'd mapped out the timeline, and I'd mapped out what I expected to happen in the future, and I had all of these plot threads, each intricately leading into the others, and I had this entire tapestry I had laid out for the players. And before the confrontation with the villain that I expected to be absolutely appalling to deal with, I decided I wanted to give the players a little bit of lighthearted fun. So I sent them up against a comic relief villain who was what's known as an Edisonade. Uh, basically, he was a villain uh, who was a young man who used amazing gadgets uh, to perform his crimes. He, he confronted them dressed as a hot dog vendor. <laughs> I've heard this um, story before. And you know, dressed dressed as a hot dog vendor, the idea was, you know, all of these, you know, silly, ridiculous hot dog themed attacks. Shooting oh, mustard God. at people, <laughs> shooting ketchup at people, flying around in a hot dog cart that turned into a hot dog helicopter. 
<laughs> and I I figured you know you know wrapping people in giant hot dog buns. Um, I I figured that this guy was going to be maybe a ten minute diversion, and everybody would get to feel powerful and have some great hero moments, easily defeating the evil Edison Aid hot dog vendor. And that fight took about two two and a half hours. <laughs> as one blown roll after another saw the comic relief hot dog vendor escape and cover half of the city in ketchup and mustard. <laughs> um, car crashes are taking place as he's blasting, you know, you know, uh, you know, vehicles in order to distract the heroes. You know, horrible damage is being done to the city everywhere. People are picking up. <laughs> cars and throwing them at him and missing and smashing the cars to the walls of buildings, doing far more damage than he could possibly have done on his own. Uh, the Superman tribute flies down and rolls a critical miss, um, smashing through several layers of office building in his attempt to plow into the hot dog vendor, pulls himself out throws himself at the hot dog vendor again, smashes through several more walls in another <laughs> building as he rolls another, not a critical miss that time, but it was like a 17 on 3d6, so pretty bad. Um, he pulls himself out and he attempts a presence attack. That could have been you! <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. So finally they capture the hot dog vendor and this stupid little side mission has chewed up most of the time that I'd planned for the game. Because I don't usually like to GM for more than four or five hours at a time. So now we finally are on to the big act. And everybody is confronting now the big villain of the evening, the ultra-villain, the, villain, the king of evil, whose actual mission, in my mind, is to come up, smash everyone, and then, with contempt, just leave them, abandon them, because they are far too trivial to possibly occupy his time. What concern could they possibly be to him? For he is the great Lord Knight, mighty vampire lord. And at this point, the team martial artist, on the first action, phase 12, gets a perfect critical hit and maximum damage with his most powerful attack and does knockback against the guy. And the knockback carries him through a back wall onto the highway. Ooh. Um, with all of these cars and trucks going by, at which point, and I, I do follow in all of my games, a rule where if it would make the players happy, and if there's a you know reasonable chance for it to happen, and one of the players suggests it, well, oh, fine, I'll go with that. At which point the luck manipulator says, and then he's hit by a truck. <laughs> <laughs> and so I let the luck manipulator hit him with a truck, and again, huge damage. Not critical, but huge damage. And so now it's the first round of combat with the great confrontation <laughs> with the mighty Lord Knight! And it's critical kick through a back wall, maximum damage from the kick, high damage from the wall that he's just flown through, and now he's out on the highway, and now he gets hit by a truck, very high damage from the truck, at which point I just looked at the sheet and I calculated how much damage was getting through, 
And basically it was, okay, screw it. Lord Knight is unconscious. You've captured him. Congratulations. <laughs> Sometimes they just curb stomp the bad guy. <laughs> so, so to put this in perspe- perspective, making sure I'm understanding what's going on here, they spent three hours fucking around with Stilt Man only to one-shot Doctor Doom. Exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. And, you know, another of the rules that I try to follow is, if a villain suffers a humiliating defeat, I really do not like bringing back that villain as a serious villain again. Um, because, you know, he's lost his credibility as a threat at this point. They are always going to remember um, you know, every time Dr. Doom shows up, I don't know how anybody else feels, but I personally remember him getting his ass handed to him by Squirrel Girl. <laughs> well, she's, she's done that to a lot of people. You know, yeah. You know, and Thanos, too. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, that's, that's how I feel about it. If okay. I reused Lord Knight again, he would never have the same credibility as a threat. And so basically I had to rethink where I was going in the campaign and what other NPCs I had in play so that I could find a logical, organic way to move on with the campaign without actually just throwing in a copy of Lord Knight or saying, no, 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 you defeated a Lord Knight bot. (laughs) Well, that is a hell of a story, Robert. Thank you very much. What about you, Bill? Do you have a uh, memorable die roll you can share? Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. um, (laughs) Although. I hate following yeah, it's up Robert's story. Hard to follow that one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hard okay. to follow. Okay, so Robert did a funny one, so I'll do a dramatic one. In the the uh, the fantasy hero game that I'm currently running, there is a character who's kind of the leader of the team. Of the, uh, she's the captain of the guard for the for the Baron's um, personal troubleshooting group. And her backstory was that her husband, uh, about a year ago, had suddenly gone crazy, had murdered their son. And then had disappeared. And I asked, I said, well, why did he go crazy? What did he do? And, and, and the player said, I have no idea. Just make something up. Make it, make it cool. Oh, no. So, <laughs> so Thanks. I, so I decided, that. yeah, that was a terrible mistake. So I, <laughs> I decided that what had happened was their family had been under a curse for generations. The firstborn son of each generation would turn into a werewolf. Um, and the, this, uh, young knight had just discovered his curse. He had just transformed for the first time and he had realized what, what, what was going on. So in order to protect his son from undergoing through the same curse, he killed his own son and then he was going to kill himself, but he was too cowardly. And so he ran away. And so he became this, he ended up becoming a bandit. Um, and. <laughs> Uh, recruiting a group of like-minded people and turning them all into werewolves, passing on his curse to them and, and becoming just a terrible person. And eventually, uh, the player, uh, the PC, uh, Lady Isabel, tracked down her husband. And I had been laying clues about this man for pretty much since the beginning of the campaign. She tracked him down, and the two of them were going to have a duel. They were going to just, they were going to finish this. She wanted him dead, and he wanted her dead. And... The, the player and I started rolling dice. We started, you know, I, I, I parry, I thrust, etc. And both of us were just rolling utter crap. You know, we couldn't hit each other. If we did hit each other, we did no damage. And so what we decided was the two of them were trying to get the other one to kill. They were basically trying to commit suicide via the other person. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the, uh, the werewolf slash knight was not fighting to his best ability. He was trying to leave himself open for his wife to kill him. 
And mm -hmm. and Lady Isabel was leaving herself open in order for the husband to kill her. Mm -hmm. And neither of them were doing it. And the and the 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 werewolf knight finally said, "When I when I finally kill you, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to kill your beloved Baron." And the next roll, um, Lady Isabel rolled a critical hit on him. <laughs> oh, awesome! <laughs> <laughs> and she said, "Don't you dare threaten him." <laughs> <laughs> and she killed him right there. She stabbed him through the heart, <laughs> did massive amounts of damage, and he he died on her sword. And nice. And as he died, he said thank you, and then he died. Nice. And the only thing going through my head, of course, was, uh, "You want to kill me? Kill me! I'm right here." <laughs> Good old Schwarzenegger lines yeah. that never go out of style. All right. So now that we've done our Tavern Tales, let's jump into our main topic tonight, which is running convention games. And with the two of you guys here, I think this is going to be a great show because you're both really good at running convention games. Uh, let's start out with, for the listeners, uh, what is the big difference in your mind between running a convention game and running a game in your home game, your home uh, campaign? Well, for me, when I'm running a game in my home campaign... I know every player long before they sit down at the table. I know what their style is. I know what they're going to want to do. I know the action points and the hero moments that they are looking for. If somebody wants a romance, I know that she wants me to include a romantic subplot for her to play through. Uh, if somebody wants a chance to be the last man standing after a great battle... I know to plan a great battle so that he can have the pleasure of being the one guy that survives. And that knowledge of the players lets me shape the campaign and the world and the setting around what the players' expectations for that game are. And when I'm sitting down with a bunch of people uh, at a convention game, I have no idea whether I'm about to sit down with a bunch of my best friends, guys who I've known for years and who I love gaming with, or if I'm going to sit down uh, with a bunch of people who've never played Hero System before, or if I'm going to sit down with three drunk guys, one unconscious guy, and <laughs> one teenager with Tourette's. I've played in that game. And <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds very familiar to me. Um, and, you know, there's, there's an incredible difference in the players. Now, of course... There's a difference in the kind of game I'm going to design, and there's a difference in how I build my characters. My characters in my home games are far more complex than anything I would put in front of players at a convention. Uh, there's all kinds of differences in terms of story arcs and you know other literary tricks, other narrative forms that I might use. But for me, it all starts from not knowing the players ahead of time. That is the biggest difference. I have to create a scenario, and I have to create characters, where if I throw the characters down in front of somebody who's never played Hero System before, or I throw them down in front of somebody who's been playing Hero System since 1986, both people will get something out of that character. I have to have a scenario that will work just as well if the players are incredibly great, fantastic players, or if the players are hungover and semi-conscious and you know, really only doing this because, by God, they're at a convention, they're going to do one more game. <laughs> Were you at Comic Palooza last year by any chance? You may have run for me. 
Were you the unconscious one or the teenager with Tourette's? Uh, the hungover, barely <laughs> conscious guy. Well, Robert and I actually played in a very memorable con game, and it wasn't memorable for the for the right reasons. Actually, it was Robert, <laughs> myself, and Bill's wife were all in this game. Um, and I like to call it the Kobayashi Maru of role-playing games. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm not going to say the name of the guy who ran it. I'm not going to say the uh, the actual like game we ran, because he, he's a guy in the industry, and I don't want to call him out. Um, but we were at Genghis Khan, and it was uh, it was the system was Savage Worlds. Mm-hmm. Robert and I, 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 you correct me if I'm wrong on this, but basically all our characters were really good at were kicking ass, and then like one other thing. We all we all had a long list of combat skills, and maybe one non-combat skill or trick. Right, and then basically. then there was only one fight in that entire game. The right. four hours. And it was a completely avoidable, like, we. the only reason we got in the fight is because we had a misunderstanding, I think. So, right, right. And it was over in, like, 20 minutes, 10 minutes. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, our, our character sheets could here. have been blank, and it would have made no difference whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, well, and then the big reason it was Kobayashi Maru is that the there was no there was no good ending. Right. The, the, the GM demanded that the only good ending was to appease the terrorists, which mm. we did not feel was heroic. If I'm not mistaken, if the listeners want to hear the entire story start to finish, I believe you talked about that on our Gaming Horror Stories episode. Uh, you know what? I probably did. So let's <laughs> let's move on. I just <laughs> wanted to bring it up because it was a con game and Robert and, and Bill's wife were in it. So well, there we I, go. I do actually want to just throw something in there because I, I do think that this is very relevant to the problem of con games. Had he been running that game for his home group people who knew him, people who knew the kind of games that he ran, people who knew the setting that he loved running in. That might have been a really good game for them. They'd have sat down, they'd have known that they were going to be entering morally dark and murky territory. They'd have known that this was a game about negotiation and investigation and attempting very carefully to negotiate the very best of terrible possible endings. And they might have been, and they might have been satisfied with that. But because we sat down and we read a little bit about the setting, I don't think either of us had the book at that stage. No. And we read the character sheets. The setting looked like an, a setting for action and adventure and heroism. And the characters looked like characters built around action and adventure and heroism. Agreed. And the entire lesson of the game was action, adventure, and heroism solve nothing. Which, unfortunately for me, was not fun. That's really the the (laughs) core there. Again, it wasn't fun, and that was a major problem with the difference between running a game for strangers at a convention who don't know who you are and who don't know your style, and running a game in your home setting where people might have been perfectly happy with a game that was, again way more morally ambiguous than we were expecting. So, Bill, what is your answer to that question? What's the difference between a convention game and a a home campaign? Well, you know, Robert covered a lot of that. Uh, Just the fact that you're running for strangers. When I run a convention game, or when I write a convention game, I, I basically come up with three broad kind of general acts. I don't actually write down what I expect people to do. I just kind of write down what I expect will happen if the players do nothing. Mm-hmm. So I'll have act one, you know, the, the bad guy is going to steal 
Uh, he's going to rob the bank. And then Act 2, he's going to um, use the money to fund his weather control device. And Act 3, he's going to activate the weather control device. Mm-hmm. And then I I sort of just let the players go at that point. Well, though, is, isn't that like a key point about a convention game is you don't have a campaign. You have just one shot right. to right. get them. You have, you know, a four-hour slot. Uh, maybe as much as an eight hour at certain conventions, maybe, but uh, typically four hour slot, mm-hmm. and you have you have roughly that much time mm-hmm. to get through some kind of story. If you don't mind me jumping in quickly, I would also say you have even less than that slot that's scattered out in front of you, because you also are competing against the energy levels and the energy losses uh, of the players before they sit down at your table. You might have a four-hour slot, but you also have to remember that these guys might be exhausted and unable to function before the end of hour three. So, yeah, it's it's incredibly tight, the amount of time you have for storytelling. Yeah, if you do a, a Sunday point. morning session, yeah, you're probably <laughs> looking at some really tired gamers. Yep, absolutely. The other thing I do is, for me, for a convention game, generally when you go to a convention, you're paying for it. Uh, most of the conventions I go to, you're paying per game that you're in. Mm-hmm. So people... Right, and that's an that's an important thing to note, too, yeah. right? Like, cause if you're a GM, you're not just... At home, you're just doing it because you love it. You're just right. doing it for fun. Right. At a convention, though, you have to kind of have that in the back of your mind that these people paid... They paid money mm-hmm. to be not only at the convention, but to be in your game specifically. So mm-hmm. I feel like there's a little bit more uh, responsibility there. Yeah, yeah. I, I really try to give everybody cool moments... I really try to figure out pretty quickly what they're looking for in a game, and I try to give it to them. I don't want my players walking away being frustrated, like, "Oh man, I tried to do this. I tried to jump over the chasm, and then I just I rolled really, bad. I rolled really badly, and I fell. It was over. The game was over yeah. for me. Um, so I, I let them do. I try to let them do uh, really cool things. And um, you know, Ross, the uh, like for instance, the uh, the Iron Age game that you played in, you and uh, yes, Darren Watts were in. You were the uh, the armored guy, and Darren was the wolf man, and, and you guys just—I just let you guys go crazy, you know. Just, <laughs> you know, I'm going to hit this guy. Well, he hits back, and you go flying across the room. Okay, now I'm tagging in. I'm going to go hit him. Uh, it um, was one of the greatest games, also. That was really fun. That was, was that was super good. Yeah, and so I try to do that. I try to give people the chance to be awesome in yes in their games because I want them to walk away saying that was you know six dollars well spent. That was that was time well spent. <laughs> <clears throat> what about you, Daryl? Do you have anything to chime in on this uh, particular topic? Well, the guys have pretty much covered everything, but one thing I wanted to uh, really elaborate on is something that Bill brought up, which is these people, you don't have a lot of time. You're probably going to blow at least half an hour to 45 minutes of that four-hour slot setting up and breaking down. Yeah. Uh, getting everyone in the character sheet, explaining the world, explaining the setup for the adventure, uh, if they're new to the game, explaining the rules. If you're running a beginner's game or a teaching game or a demo for something, you've got to scale way back on what you want to do. Have little things that you can throw in if they're picking it up quick and moving through it, but really scale back on things they absolutely have to do to finish the adventure because otherwise you're not going to get to it all because you're, gonna, you're teaching these people the rules for the game too, mm-hmm. as well as the setting, as well as their characters. Give them time to look over the character sheet and figure out who this is they're playing. Yeah. But Bill brought up something that's very, very important. Since it is a one-shot game, you can't do the thing where it's, okay, this adventure focuses on this character with this character secondary and everyone else is supporting them. 
Next week we'll get we'll focus on this character. Next week we'll focus on this character. Yeah. No, everyone's got to have their moment well, in that one game. I'm going to push back a little bit on that. I, I agree in the larger sense. Everyone needs to have a moment. Yes, that's that's totally true. But you can do a convention game that is sort of centered around one of the characters. That's I've actually well, done yeah. that myself. I, I didn't mean like like plot is centered around. I meant like this is the only person that does something awesome in this game. No, yeah, that's right. that's totally true. That, that's what I was meaning by that. Sorry. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, and, and I think Daryl just hit something right on the head, um, which he's talking about, you know, you've got to be able to get a handle on the characters. When I'm creating a con game, one of the things that I always think is is critical is to have something on that character sheet that tells the player what this character is about and have it be mm-hmm. very upfront and highlighted and, and bold. And, you know, there's just no way that they should be able to miss it if they look at that character and say, oh, he is about being a superstitious bigoted, you know, stick in the mud, right? If that's the character's mm-hmm. shtick, that should be a, you know, there should be a big flashing light on the character sheet that says, hey, don't forget about this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's not like a the straitjacket. They don't have to be that, but it's, you know, that if you're going to give them, if you're going to go to time and trouble to make a pre-gen, you should have something on the, the character sheet for the pre-gen that says what they're like and what they're about. You should probably be able to describe the entire world and the entire campaign in like a paragraph. Yeah. The elevator pitch. Yeah. You need to be able to do the whole, you need to be able to get everybody into what you're doing within a couple of minutes of talking about it. You don't want to have to say, well, first the, the slave lord of Garanth, uh, conquered these <laughs> lands and then the necromancer came along and he did this and then this happened and then all these people were displaced from their homes and they moved and then you guys showed up and you're like, well, I yeah. don't know who any of these people are and I don't okay, know why so I should ab- care. What happened after? Oh, sorry, I wasn't paying attention. Uh, what, what happened after Save Lord Garath? First, the earth cooled. Then, the dinosaurs. Yeah, you, you should you should be able to do a real quick elevator pitch to explain to everybody what this game is about, and do it in a paragraph or two at most, because otherwise you, they're just they're not going to remember it. They're going to forget it. They're going to stop paying attention, or or they're going to be hungover. Yeah, that that was actually a lesson that got beaten into my head over convention games. I used to have incredibly complicated backstories for every character so that people could sit there and if they wanted to really richly immerse themselves into the world the way they would at you know a game that I was running at home uh and over the years I've come to feel that it's really important to just throw down iconic characters ideally characters that are clearly based on someone the player already knows you know a teen titans style game where every character is a clear reference back to one of the original Teen Titans, or one of the current Teen Titans. Um, a Lucha Libre-style game, where every character is very clearly a reference to a current or former luchador. You know, and similarly, the worlds have to be very simple, iconic worlds. Worlds that people can immediately say, okay, well, this is the world of the Justice League. Okay, this is a world where... Uh, vampires and, you know, witches and werewolves are all real and they've just had a tremendous civil war. Well, I think, you know, that's true for one-shot type games. Yeah. But there is another type of con game that is called a living campaign. Mm-hmm. And, um, games that are in living campaigns, they, they grow and change over time and they're kind of their shtick is having a whole bunch of backstory and having, uh, some really deep. Right. You know, things that, 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 that evolve over time. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the RPGA has, uh, 
various uh, projects. Then there's uh, the Shadowrun Missions style, which also does this, and there's the Pathfinder Society, which does this. Um, in the uh, hero space, there's a well-known guy by the name of Rod Curry, who yeah. has basically made his entire, like, the reason why people know who Rod Curry is, <laughs> is because uh, he runs at conventions these astonishingly detailed <clears throat> and astonishingly historic like when you pick up a character, there is two or three pages worth of backstory, <laughs> yeah, uh, based on you know based ten or twelve games. years of conventions, right? Yep. So, uh, so, so there's there's distinct. I just want to point out that there are distinct different styles of convention games, and we've been mm-hmm. talking specifically about the one shot, but there is also this living campaign yep. idea and living campaigns. Uh, Obviously, like, you know, when you're in Rod Curry's game, you know, he, he controls the characters and, and they, they grow according to what Rod believes. Um, but in, in games like, uh, Shadowrun Missions or Pathfinder Society, you actually make a character and keep track of, of the changes and updates over time mm-hmm. and you carry your, you carry your character sheet around. Now, it used to be you would get it signed by GMs, I believe, but now they've gone to a more, um, Second electronic system. More electronic, yeah. And uh, Sean Patrick Fannin, who's been on the show before, is doing something kind of like that with uh, Shintar for the Savage Worlds uh, line. He has the campaign. I, Daryl, do you remember what that's called? Oh, I'm interviewing him tomorrow about it. Justice in Life. Justice in Life, that's right. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, but what he's doing is like way beyond what like Pathfinder Society and uh, RPGA are doing. Well, now I'm going to say the difference with the like the Pathfinder Society and the Living Forgotten Realms and that sort of thing is that you, if you're running one of those games, you are running a module that has already been created by whoever, by the the guys who who. Well, most of the time, not always, but most of the time. Okay, so yeah, for the most part, though, you're not actually creating your own as a GM. You're not creating your own modules. You're, you're running something that's been pre-created. Generally, speaking. well, like there are circumstances under which you can run your own game. And have it be part of a living campaign, but for the most part, you are correct that you're running an actual uh, thing that is pre-generated by a different person. So uh, that's living campaigns. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, honestly, you know, the funny thing is, aside from Justice in Life, um, I have not really played in very many of these. I played in like uh, Living Seattle, I think, yeah. once or twice. And of course, you you contributed uh, to. My own young titans yes. uh, series of games, where you know your actions definitely influenced the, the development of Miss Junior Olympia over time. <laughs> One of my favorite uh, characters ever, and and you're right that your your game is kind of like a living campaign. You're, you're not you don't go to the same extent as like as Rod Curry does, or no. you know, and 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 you you track it only on a very you know, uh, well, on a you very know, the, minor what, level. What I yes. what I like to do is. Every one of the now the Young Titans is actually a pretty good example of this. Every action taken in basically the best of the convention games, you know, anything basically that was really awesome that I really liked, becomes canon for those characters as they proceed into the next convention game. And so, for instance, when you as Miss Junior Olympia uh, manage to become one of the links in the chain that bound the Death Dragon and kept it from ripping free and destroying all of creation. You know, that created a permanent change in her costume. There was a little notation that she was one of the links of the chain, you know, added into her character sheet. 
And in future games, you know, there were a few references to that. Uh, Which I her. thought was awesome. Yeah, you know, it's, it's as, totally you know, as cool. She, as she continued forward. Now, Rod does an amazing job of teaching you the entire history of his campaign. And I absolutely love gaming with him. In the case of Young Titans, I like to keep it simple enough that, you know, someone who has run, you know, has played with me in the Young Titans game before can sit down and pick up their old character and say, hey, I do remember this guy, and I remember the adventure that I had. Uh, and at the same time, a completely new player can sit down and take that character and run with it and not have to worry about the accumulated continuity past actual stat changes and things. Right. And and like I said, there's nothing really wrong with that. It's I'm mm -hmm. just saying I I didn't consider your game to be technically a living campaign. No, although no. it it kind of it's it's in a gray space in between there. Yeah, you, you did point that out. That's a good point. Yeah, and you know, it's a living campaign, and, but it's not organized play. Right, exactly. Well, now similarly, uh, if people you know very early in the Young Titans continuity, someone mentioned to me that Hervé Villachez, who was a supporting character who I had running around, was dead. Uh, and therefore, someone should... being me, of course. <laughs> oh, that was you. Okay. So at that point, Hervé Villachez immediately transitioned into being zombie Hervé Villachez, <laughs> um, who then became a reoccurring character in the campaign uh, and showed up, you know, repeatedly. And luckily, the actual real-world Hervé Villachez was deeply into mysticism and occultism, which made having his, you know, hero system equivalent being you know, a zombie sorcerer, even easier. <laughs> so we've talked about different types of games that you're going to play in, but let's talk about how you how you actually choose to play the games that you are in at a convention. How, okay. Let's say you get to a convention and you you want to play some games. Let's uh let's talk about that. What should what should our listeners know about that? About I just want it on record that uh, the beer I've been drinking, I found out why it tastes funny. The best buy date on it is 12, 15, 13. So if I die, uh, my heirs, please sue the convenience store where I bought this beer. Wow. Daryl, you brought beer and you're not sharing? What's up with that? As soon as there's an FTP software that allows me to transfer beer, I'd be happy to send you one. <laughs> okay. So essentially, I would say the most important thing when you're choosing which games to play, which ones will give you fresh beer? Uh, you know, which, which GMs have actually listed in the convention book, I have beer and I can guarantee you that it has not gone bad by the time you drink it. So. Yeah, that's very important, actually. No, actually, okay. in a, in a, I know that Rob was being uh, completely serious enough, but she's facetious at all. Uh, but <laughs> when I, when I look for a game, if I'm going to play something, I like to try out games that I've never, especially if I'm at a big convention like Gen Con, I like to try out games that I've never played before, sometimes even games that I've never heard of. Right. Yeah. Um, I played, I was lucky enough to play um, Hollow Earth Expeditions one year uh, before the game actually came out, while Jeff mm -hmm. Combos was still playtesting. So I got into one of Jeff Combos. I'd never heard of it, but I like, you know, I was like, oh, Pulp Fiction, uh, Nazis, uh, Hollow Earth, yeah, I'm into that. So I I jumped in, and it was one of the most enjoyable games that I've ever played in at a convention. Well, I think, you know, there's an important point here that there's kind of two ways to go when you're selecting games. One is to pick something that you know you want to play really badly. Mm -hmm. And one is to pick something that you have never played before, but you want to try it. 
uh, sort of the experimental versus the, 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 you know, the inherent selection. Yeah. And I would say that if you're going to go for something that you know you specifically want to play, like let's say there's a, you know, play a cursed with the designer. I don't know, something like that. Um, you want to sign up in advance for that one because mm-hmm. you know you want to be in it. Like at Genghis Khan every year, I try to sign up early so I can get into Robert's games and Bill's games. Um, but if I'm going to a convention like Bill said and I want to just sort of experiment, I think signing up in advance is not necessarily the best way. I actually like to just kind of get a bunch of generic tickets and maybe wander around and see what's open. Unless there's something that you know is going to be, it's either kind of new or something like that and you want to give it a try, that case, but it's leaning more towards your first example, like play with the designer. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just, I'm pointing out that there's kind of two ways to go with that. Uh, yeah. And one, one way is best if you sign up in advance and the other is, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing wrong with signing up in advance just for, you know, I don't know if I want to play this or not, but sometimes it is nice just to have some generic tickets and see what you feel like doing. The biggest, most important thing, in my opinion, don't overschedule yourself because like I mm. said, you may just wander around the game hall and see, oh, this game, I must have skipped, I must have missed this in the program. This looks kind of cool. Let me see. You guys have got an open table? Let me sit down. If you've scheduled yourself back to back to back to back and leaving yourself like, okay, I have to run and get food in this one hour block, then I go to the next game, you're going to miss out on stuff that you might just wander into. Right. And you're also going to end up being exhausted, which is okay if you're in your 20s, but I'm in my 40s, so that just doesn't work for me anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Even if you're in your 20s, you can get burned out. Mm -hmm. You may not believe it, but yeah, you can. Well, I, you know, there's, there's reasons why I think Genghis Khan is one of the best conventions in the world. Um, and part of that is because, uh, I can play at, in each and every slot at Genghis Khan and I will not get burned out. I will be having a freaking great time. Uh, but part of that is because I know some, some amazing GMs there and I know who, you know, which games to get into. So Daryl's got a good point, you know, uh, at a convention that you maybe don't have uh, a lot of experience with or, you know, especially a big one like, say, Gen Con or PAX. Yeah, don't overschedule. Give yourself some room. I would, I would even go so far as to say the morning slots are, are typically the ones that have the, uh, most dropouts. <laughs> yes. If you're like, if you're just want to cruise and see what's available, the morning slot is the time. Let me tell you. As someone who has dropped at least two of those, yes. <laughs> My apologies to those GMs. I found them afterwards and did apologize in person, but once again, Sorry, the hotel bar was open late. <laughs> now you should, uh, yeah, usually what's, the, the uh, convention will have like a program or something on their website where you can read ahead and see what the game is about. Um, and oftentimes this will, this varies in its amount of detail, but I think uh, most of the time it'll at least tell you the name of the game and like what, it, you know, there's like a one or two sentence description. Occasionally it'll even give you some information like, you know, this is going to have pre-generated characters or, uh, you know, this is okay for people who don't know the system, that kind of a thing. And it's also worth gossiping with your fellow uh, convention <laughs> attendees and players. Well, you know, obviously, gossiping is a big part of why you're there in the first place. But uh, a lot of games that I've tried that have turned out really well, I tried because word of mouth told me that this GM was really worth playing with, or that you know this campaign was really worth taking a look at. Oh my God. Bill Gates, <laughs> look at his game. Yeah, really. It's seriously. just so big. <laughs> well, I don't like to brag. See, now you're just so. ripping off Glee. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I dusted that one off. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, and lastly, uh, there is something that does tend to happen. Um, I have seen where uh, some people will get together as a group. 
and sign up for convention games? Has, has this right. happened to you, either you guys, uh, Robert or Bill? Yeah, all the time. It's happened to me a few times. And What's your opinion? It's sometimes wonderful, and it's sometimes completely disaster for the game, and it entirely depends on the group. Sometimes you'll have, you know, four people who will come together to your table who signed up as a group for your game. And they are, you know, fantastic, great players who are enjoying being there. And you will be thrilled to have them sit down at the table. And they can play off each other. And they can play off each other. And they're a troupe that's well-practiced. And this is a form of improv theater. So when you've got a troupe that's well-practiced working together, it can be wonderful. Uh, at the same time, I've had groups of people sit down at my table where one of them was actually interested in the game, and the other three were really interested in discussing what was on Doctor Who last night. <laughs> and... Yeah, did you see that episode? That was pretty <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and that can be tremendously difficult to deal with for me because you know, I'm trying as the GM to build enthusiasm and to build some momentum and to get some energy into the table. And you've got, you know, maybe two or three people who want to be there who are paying attention and two or three people who are, you know, really excited to talk about, you know, TV or beer or, you know, the fact that their beer has gone stale. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, you know, they're not really that interested in sitting here and saving the world, which is why I always carry a taser to my games. <laughs> well, that will wake them up <laughs> briefly, or, or put them down permanently. <laughs> Bill, what about you? Um, I've had people sign up with my games as a group. My experience has generally been good. I generally get people who game together and who know each other and who want to play off each other and want to play with each other uh, in a different world, in a different setting, in a different system. And so generally my experience has been good, although definitely every once in a while you get that group where uh, sometimes sometimes they just want to, I don't know if, they're, if they just want to harass the GM or if they just want to, I played with some groups who wanted to play in their own home campaign uh, <laughs> at a convention with a different GM. And so they just go in these weird directions and you're like, that's, we're not, we're playing a superhero game. Why are you guys talking about fighting orcs? You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> Um, so I've, I've done that. If I could throw in one more thing here, because this is actually very relevant to the problems inherent in convention gaming. When you do have a group sit down at your table, it's even more important than it otherwise would be to make sure that you fully involve everybody at the table. Because when you've got these three or four guys who've been gaming together forever, and they will often be great players, Bill is absolutely right, they'll be the people you want to have at your table. It's really easy for somebody who's a stranger, and you know, gaming is a hobby that attracts a lot of socially awkward people, you know, shocking as that observation may be. <laughs> no. You know, you'll, you'll have somebody who's sitting there who's you know, already a little bit shy, who's already a little bit awkward, and now this group of friends has sat down, and they're laughing, and they're talking, and they're having a great time, and the GM is focusing on them because you do focus at the noisy people at the table. And you know you'll you'll end up neglecting that one person who's you know already feeling a little bit left out uh, just because the other guys know each other. Um, so it's it's you know just one of those other things that you have to keep in balance at a convention game. You have, and this also is true when your friends sit down. It's fantastic to have you Ross and you Bill show up at my games. I look forward to it. 
And indeed, I plan some elements of the games around the hope that you guys will show up. Um, I really no, do. No pressure, I sit there. no pressure. Yeah, no pressure, no pressure. Um, but at the same time, it's even easier than it is in a home campaign to focus on the players that you know and end up ignoring a player who otherwise might have a great deal to contribute. Um, and that in turn can lead to that player stepping away and thinking to himself, well, hell, Accursed wasn't that great a setting after all. I mean, everybody else was laughing and having a great time, but I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And that is not something you want at the end of your game. You know, I, the games are there. You know, of course the games are there for everyone to have fun, and you want them to have fun. And that's part of the art of this, the ability to create this theatrical performance that everyone participates in and everyone loves and everyone steps away saying, that was so amazing. But also you're trying to present a world and an image and an idea and you and a gaming system. And you don't want people to step away with negative feelings about the campaign, the setting, the gaming system, the genre, because you happened to be too into, you know, two or three people who were at the table. So the, the long story short is it can be good, it can be bad, and there's some things that game masters need to keep an eye on. Uh, and which I think, carry a taser. And carry a taser. <laughs> the Gamers Tavern does not endorse assaulting other convention attendees. Yes, security <laughs> will throw you out. But there, there's one reason why I put this in here, though, is because there are some people who do like to do this. Like, oh, hey, Ross Watson's going to be at Comic Palooza and he's running a Cursed. We're all big Gamers Tavern fans. We all love a Cursed. Let's all go sign up together. And that can be fun. In that situation, yeah, that's kind of a cool thing to do. I recommend not doing it, though, unless it's I really want to play a game with this specific GM. If it's just you're wanting to play this game and you don't know who the GM it's not anything special, go solo or go with just one friend because you're going to sit down at that table with by yourself with four strangers and you're going to walk away with five friends. Mm. Well, hopefully I have, I have hope, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully if things go well, cause I've, I've had people, I ran into them at a convention six months later. And it's like, Oh, Hey, you were at that. You were in that game. I played It's Oh yeah. You. And then we hang out all night. I've made so many friends that way. So yeah, yeah. It, you can do it. It's definitely true. Let's take a break. And we'll see you guys back here after we uh, refuel or whatever. Sounds Thank good. You. I need to find something other than foul beer to drink. <laughs> Hi, this is Nick Jaworski, and you may not realize it or probably don't care, but I edit some of the shows here on the Gamers Tavern Podcast Network. If you like podcasts but love audio editing, then I have great news for you. I have my own show titled One Degree of Separation, and you can listen to it right now and subscribe at OneDegreeWithNick.com. The show is kind of hard to describe. Each episode is basically an experiment that contains original music, stories, interviews. It's probably just best if I quickly show you some recent episodes. Try to see what you had, if you had anything interesting for me. Uh, Did you ever waterboarded somebody? There's actually a story of Abraham Lincoln, a very superstitious man, seeing his own doppelganger multiple times over a couple of nights. When looking in the mirror, he saw two faces, his normal face, and then a pale, ghostly one that that worried him. I have to get back to editing right now, but you should go check out all of that and more at OneDegreeWithNick.com. Thanks. Thanks. 
And we're back with episode 32 of the Gamers Tavern. And we have with us, of course, Robert Dorff and Bill Keyes. We are talking about running games at conventions and things of that nature. So let's, uh, let's ask a question for these two guys. What are some things you need to know if you are, for our listeners, if you want to run a game at a convention, let's say you're a GM and you want to run a game there, um, what is the, the things you should do? Prep time, prep time, prep time, prep time. I'm dead serious. Prep time. Running a good four-hour convention game is not just having a basic outline of the plot and throwing down some pregens. Now, that's not to say there aren't people who can do a good game like that. There are some people who are really gifted improv artists who can have fun at a game and give you a lot of fun at a game, especially if it's a troop of really good players. But the best games that I've run, the ones that have been least energy-draining and that players have enjoyed the most, have involved a huge amount of prep time. I would say a four-hour game, the minimum prep time that you are going to need in order to make that four-hour game worth playing, figure 12 hours, dead minimum. And if you can schedule, say, 24 hours or 32 hours of work ahead of time, that will be four hours that your players will remember for years. I want to jump in real fast and say that what he's saying right now does not apply only if you're creating your own adventure. If you're running uh, an organized play adventure for Pathfinder Society, Shadowrun Missions, whatever, make sure you're going to put in that same amount of prep time because you are going to read that adventure cover to cover at least a dozen times to make sure you've got everything down so you don't contradict yourself. Well, let's yeah. be clear. This is, We're not saying this is for everybody in every situation. This is just, right. this is a generalized good advice. Um, for example, I am one of those guys that just goes in with like a outline. <laughs> um, yeah. I am too, but I'm, I put in all that prep work on pre printed adventures, but I just go in with an outline of characters. <laughs> well, one thing, one thing I definitely, <laughs> it's my adventure. one thing I definitely do though, uh, as far as prep time is, um, I run the game at home. Right. I do, I do a test run before I take it to convention. I make sure and play it with some people in mm-hmm. a controlled environment. Uh, so not only so I can tell whether it fits in that four hour slot, mm-hmm. but you know, it gives me an idea of what, where the, where the log jams occur, where the slow bits are right. going to come up. It gives me an idea about pacing, um, and questions that are going to be asked, things of that nature. Yeah. And someone will catch the fact that you've forgotten to include an important skill for one of the characters that they really do need to complete the game. And you'll get for each time that you run it at home before you run it at the convention game. You know, you'll get ideas for things you can do at the convention, ideas for directions the players might take. And, you know, that also is tremendously valuable. Yes. So do you have lockpicking? I don't have lockpicking. <laughs> lock Actually, this yes. happened in my accursed game at yeah. Gen Con, or uh, at, at Genghis Con, I should say. Uh, yeah. Because I, di- I failed to run that one at home. Actually, I, I made a mistake on that one. And uh, when I brought it to Genghis, mm-hmm. I thought, okay, this is going to, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is going to work. Mm-hmm. And Robert looked at me and you know, looked at his character and says, I don't have that skill. And I was like, oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> so, yeah, take it from me, play it at home, test it out. Mm-hmm. See, I'm bad because I, I never do that. I, I hardly ever do <laughs> test runs at home. Um, unless I'm running a game that I've never run before or that I've very rarely run before, um, mm-hmm. then I just 
I've been like the hero system. I've been running that game for 30 years plus. So I've okay. got a pretty good feel of how everything works and how it's going to run. So I, I just, mm-hmm. write, I just write it down and, and just go. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't, I, I wish I could do 36 hours of preparation. <laughs> <laughs> well, that does include the character sheets and everything else, but okay. <laughs> well, okay. So, so if you include the character sheets, then maybe, but that's why I run the same in the same world and with the same characters every year because I create mm-hmm. the characters once and I never have to worry about them, to worry about them again. For the most part, I just build the characters and run the same game over and over and over again. <laughs> and well, that's when the dwarf it, steps up and says, I have a two-handed lockpick. <laughs> <laughs> it's also really useful to run the same game at least two or three times at a convention, both because your prep time is already over and you've already you know built the world and you've built the setting, you've built the characters and you've got your solid ideas for where everything's going to go and you've picked your theme music and all of that stuff. But also, if you run the same game two or three times or three or four times at a single convention, the later sessions are going to be funnier and smarter and smoother than that first one that you ran because all of your stage fright is going to be gone. Everything is going to have been worked out in your mind very clearly. You already have ideas for how people at a convention are going to react, which is not the same as people sitting around your table at home. And yeah, that that third or fourth run is going to be pretty smooth, and then the Sunday run is going to suck because Sunday sucks. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to throw out there. There's a there's actually a book, a PDF you can get online um, called Never Unprepared. Mm-hmm. The Complete Game Master's Guide to Session Prep, and it's it's not bad. It's uh, written by a guy called Phil Vecchione, and it's uh, basically an epic rock ballad about uh, game prep. You should mm-hmm. definitely, if you're interested in this kind of thing and you think you could use some help on figuring out what are the best ways to prepare, uh, especially for a con game, I would recommend it. And we'll have a link in the show notes to that. And that reminds me of another one that you may want to look into. It's by uh, Michael Shea, and this one's a lot more specific to D&D but it's called The Lazy Dungeon Master. Uh, He's also known online as Sly Flourish, if you've read his blog before. But that's another good one if you're wanting something to help you. If you're one of those guys who's a little bit nervous about doing a lot of improv or letting the players go off the rails, he has a lot of great tips that you can even apply to other game systems. But it is rather fantasy RPG D20-centric for that specific book, but... Are there anything, uh, Robert or Bill, is there anything you guys think of when you're, you know, when you're scheduling to run a game? Is there anything that comes to mind when you're choosing your system or scheduling the time? Scheduling the time, uh, never Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I'm, I cannot the only, emphasize I'm the only that dummy enough. that does Sunday morning games. <laughs> no, you know what? I actually, I like running Sunday morning games, but when I do, I always run something that is, that I just plan to be ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I run Lucha Libre on Sunday mornings a lot because the game doesn't really take a whole lot of brain power and people can get as goofy as they want. Thank you. And it's also a fairly high energy type game. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, it, it helps wake people up. Um, mm-hmm. usually the, the first hour kind of drags, but after a while it, it really starts. If you're, if I'm doing it right, it really starts going and it gets really fun and it gets really crazy towards the end. Right. I I recommend against, and I know that everyone is going to do this anyway, because I do this anyway, but I know that I shouldn't. I recommend against running a game immediately after you've played, and I recommend against 
arranging your schedule so that you are going to be up until four in the morning and then trying to run a game at seven. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and I've done I've done both of those things countless times, but you really shouldn't. It, and it's not even because you'll run a bad game because sometimes you know you'll run a fantastic game when you're exhausted. Uh, but you will pay the price for it afterwards, especially if, like myself, you are a very, very old person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like to run um, my games in the morning slot just because that gives me the rest of the day to play. Mm-hmm. And that way that way, I go from GMing to playing in a game rather than the other way around. Yep. Mm. Yeah, and that's a much better way to do it. One thing that I follow is uh, what I call the one two six rule. For, and this is not specific to game mastering. This is specific to being at a convention. It's it's one shower per day, <laughs> two, one. two decent meals per day, and a decent meal does not mean like a bag of Fritos and a Mountain Dew. It means actually a meal, <laughs> and six consecutive hours of sleep per day. And if you do those three yeah. things: one shower, two meals, six hours of sleep, you will have a good convention. At least one shower. <laughs> Some people need more than one. Yes, if it's if it's if it's summertime, yeah. Summer Texas cons, mm-hmm. you damn well be t- taking a morning and an evening yeah, shower. Might, you might really have to, but but this is the bare minimum. You can have three meals, you can have eight hours of sleep, you can have two showers, but bare minimum, one shower, two meals, six hours of sleep. All right. Yeah. What about when you're choosing the system that you want to run? Now, obviously, um, Roberts run a ton of different systems. <laughs> uh, I generally would say do not, and this actually has less to do with the system, um, though this. That the system is affected by it as it does by how strictly you want to enforce and interpret rules. Do not do anything too rules intensive at a time you expect to be tired. Now that's going to vary according to your energy levels. That's going to vary according to your nutrition. It's even going to vary according to the type of convention you're used to having. You know, Bill was mentioning, and this is you know very smart running Lucha Libre on Sunday mornings. Because in Lucha, in Lucha Libre, when you're running it in any system, nobody really cares about anything except the rule of cool when you're doing Lucha Libre. <laughs> you know, no, you know nobody, nobody really cares about anything except, wow, he did that, and it was so awesome. And so you can run really rules light and just, you know, there's, there's a, something I wanted to reference a little bit earlier, which is the He's Tarzan rule. Uh, which is basically if it is within the oeuvre of your character, if it is within your character's type, your character should be allowed to do it without having to worry about a die roll unless it directly affects combat. And that kind of fast and loose interpretation of the rules is what you want when you are tired. Now, there's also a lot of pleasure to be had from being incredibly crunchy. You can you can take a lot of joy in making sure that everything is min-maxed and munchkined and that every little you know combat rule is brought in and that every modifier is applied. Those sorts of games that are incredibly rules-intensive are really the things you want to be running um, around noon uh, when you are fully awake, when you've had your time in the morning to wake up and get into gear and you're not exhausted yet. Those types of rule-intensive systems are best for your first game in the afternoon that you're running. Um, or, or rule-intensive systems, rule-intensive game sessions. You know, run those when your energy is at its highest. All right. Well, we've talked a lot about scheduling yourself to run a game. 
and there's some things we could probably, you know, still get into about that. Like your description, when you write your description, what are some things you guys want to make sure and note? Mm, I make it quick and I make it, uh, I try to make it exciting. I, I want yeah. to get the feel and I want to get people who, to look at it and, and get excited about the game and say, this is something. Well, you want right. to note, like, for example, whether it's a beginner or advanced, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I want to note the genre, the, the system. Sometimes that's important for people. They, they want to run or they want to play in a hero system. They want to play in a shadow run. They want to play Pathfinder, whatever. Right. Um, I put keywords in my description. So, like, when I run my steampunk game, I'll, I'll put a keyword that'll be like, uh, um, steampunk and sorcery in 1896 London or something like right. that. Uh, what about like your Iron Age game? Would you put down like it's got mature content? Absolutely for that game. Yeah. 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 You okay. have to, you have to throw in, <laughs> you know, you know, you don't have to do a specific age range, but you do have to, you know, mention, you have to mention mature content, explicit content, adults only. And, you know, alternatively, you can certainly say, you know, family friendly, all ages. Yeah, for my Teen Titans um, game, all I, I, I specifically say all ages for that. Yeah, because I I've gotten tables full of nine year olds. Yeah, well, <laughs> and and uh, Genghis Khan has a really wonderful Khan Junior uh, system actually set up for that. Um, so what do you pack? What do you bring if you're you're running a game? What do you make sure you shows in your backpack? Beer <laughs> and a taser. <laughs> <laughs> I always bring extra dice. I yeah, always bring extra pencils. Yep. Um, it's actually really useful to me, not as a GM so much, uh, but as a pitch man for my friends. Um, I like to have a couple of copies of the rules of the game in the backpack so that if somebody wants to sit there and leaf through them, they can, you know, while I'm running the game. Um, and if there's, you know, a particular setting book, say Lucha Hebrew, you know, you know, Lucha Libre Hero, um, well, make sure you have the Lucha Hero book in the bag so that you can take it out and pass it around the table to players who've never tried Hero System before, or who've never tried Lucha Hero before, so that they can hold the book in their hand and get a feeling for it. And, you know, when you hold something in your hand, you get a feeling of ownership for that thing. You know, um, some some companies actually give you free stuff absolutely. when you demo, and some of that is uh, some of that is intended to be given away, right? You know, if, and if possible, you should have one or two prizes to hand out um, specific to the game and the setting, because you're not just you know it's it's a it's a strange thing. You're not really making money for your friends when you sell these books for the vast majority of people who are in this industry at all. Um, you're in it as a hobby. You know, there there are a few exceptions, but most people are in it as a hobby, and then the lucky ones, it's a hobby that pays for itself, and not a hobby you lose money on. And then the super lucky ones are the ones that make a living off of it. But when you are getting people to buy a product, you're getting them invested in the hobby, and you're continuing the hobby, and you're expanding your genre and your branch of the hobby. Okay. You know, it's more than just being a pitch man in a real sense. And I know this sounds ridiculous, but it is true. You are an evangelist for gaming. Like an ambassador. Like, yeah, you're an ambassador for gaming. No, that's a much nicer term. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I prefer to think of myself as a cult leader of gaming. Um, <laughs> I have drank yeah. the Kool-Aid. 
Um, and so, you know, that's, you know, it's nice to have little physical things you can give people uh, that will encourage them to, you know, come back and play, but also will encourage them to explore more on their own and to go out and buy the books that were involved in the game. There's, there's one other thing I wanted to bring up about what to bring. It's something I strongly suggest, and it keys off of uh, two things that Robert said. One is something to give away, and I really, really, really like it. I, I never actually run a game at a con except for I was an idiot and tried to run a D&D 4th edition game at a video game convention, and that <laughs> didn't turn out too well, surprisingly. But uh, I made sure that I had enough copies that of the character sheets so that they could take them with them. for. Two, and there's two good reasons. One... It gives them something to remember the game by. At the very least, they have their character sheet from that cool game that they played. Mm -hmm. And if they need to remember, oh, what was that system again? Let me pull out my character sheet that I got from the game. Yep. Number two, they can write on it. If they spill something on it, you don't have to hand that same stained, erase-marked character sheet to the next group. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, you know, again, I think I'm going to push back a little bit on it. I think there's, you make a good point about disposable character sheets that, that absolutely taking something home is, is good. But at the same time, like, I have these really sweet character sheets that uh, Bill helped me make for um, Shadows Angeles when I run that. And those are on, uh, those are like laminated, uh, like vinyl, basically. <laughs> and no, you don't get to take those home, but they look amazing. <laughs> and and I think that, that the fact that they're full color and the fact they're glossy and everything, I think that gives people a memorable experience at the table. Uh, and, and the laminated fixes the problems I have with it, which is spill something on right. it or being able to write on it. So if you're doing that, yes, by all means, <laughs> take them back at the end. <laughs> Just saying. So we've talked about scheduling games. Um, what about pickup games? One of my best experiences playing a game was a pickup game with, uh, we have had everyone at this table on the show except Miranda Horner. It was, uh, Miranda Horner, Bruce Cordell, Tor Cottrell. Um, Ari Marmel, Elizabeth Bear, uh, me, and DM'd by Robert Schwab. And what it was is we just, we had gone out to dinner and after I, I interviewed everyone except for Elizabeth Bear because she, she didn't have a gaming product to interview about. So I can interview her for any cool news, but went out to dinner and came back to the hotel box. Like, Hey, you guys want to play a pickup game of D and D? Sure. Handed out the playtest stuff for D and D next. And we just, sat and played an awesome game in the hotel bar just completely on a whim. It was a blast, too, because it was one of those Sunday night at the hotel bar, really silly. And if you remember graphic content, this is the one with the um, the well-endowed giants. <laughs> we, we don't have a warning on this particular show, so we'll just we will direct, you, we will direct you to that show, which does have a warning on it for details on that story. Uh, but yes, pickup games are great. I do, I do like them. Um, I have a very memorable occasion where we sat down and just had the feng shui book, like on the table, and a bunch of guys came up and said, "Hey, we'd like to play feng shui. Are you running something?" Uh, sure, because <laughs> feng shui is something you can just literally open the book and play yeah. within ten minutes. Uh, and it, yeah. yeah, so pickup games are great. I, I do think they're, yeah, they're and wonderful. that that instantly is one of those cases where prep time can go out the window, because you know, yeah. In, it's a completely different feeling and flavor of game when you've got a pickup game than when people have actually paid and are planning to sit down and everything is scheduled. In a, in a pickup game, you really can just improv off of whatever happens to be in your bag at a time at the time. So, where do you find a pickup game? 
the bar. <laughs> I, I found mine in the hallway. Uh, there's yeah. also sometimes like a bulletin board. Yeah. Um, yeah. At Winter Fantasy Con, about phew, God, it's been 15 years already. Uh, <laughs> at Winter Fantasy Con over 15 years ago, uh, we went and uh, basically posted a notice on the board that we were running a Shadowrun game in our hotel room and had a bunch of people show up. Yeah. At Genghis Khan, uh, and now the system has changed, and I don't know what the system is going to be next year. Uh, but at Genghis Khan, they used to have um, a system where everybody would gather together uh, in rooms. At, well, not, not in rooms. They would gather together in large open spaces and be taken... Muster. Muster, yeah, open call you. muster. And, you know, open call muster. They would be gathered together and they would be taken to their games. And occasionally you would find little pockets of people who had not been taken to their game for one reason or another. Maybe they'd arrived a few minutes late. Maybe the GM hadn't shown up. But for whatever, whatever reason, they did not have a game to go to. And that used to be a pretty good source of players if you wanted to just grab six people and sit down around a random table. At most conventions, you can usually find little clumps of people who don't have anything much to do at the time and are willing to sit down with you and try something out for an hour or two. And I will go on record as saying I miss Muster, and I hope they bring it back. I agree <laughs> with you completely. And another thing a lot of the conventions do is they'll have some sort of... Uh, a, they'll have their game room, and usually it's called the open game room. Right. Sure, a lot, they'll have a schedule where you sign up in advance for stuff, but most conventions will, will dedicate a pretty big, like, you know, like almost mini ballroom-type mm -hmm. room. Mm -hmm. And have lots of tables, so there's plenty of room for everyone. I've been to some cons where they don't do that as well. But if you go to these these open rooms, a lot of times you can find people for games there. Right. And there's always a tiger pit as an option. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> always you, fun. You, you prepare a tiger pit. Generally, it's best to do this you know, in front of, say, the concession area. And you <laughs> let people out if they agree to sit down and game with you for two hours. And then they can be freed from the tiger pit and, you know. It works out fine that way. So, you know, let's say we've we've actually signed up for a game, and we're coming. We all sit down. What are uh how how are we what are we supposed to expect at a convention table? <laughs> That's a, a broad game. question. <laughs> I know, I know. Let, let let me phrase it a different way. What is the best way to be a good player in a convention game? One thing that you have to do as a player at a convention game, which is something you don't have to do to the same extent when you're at home, a good player at a convention game has to make the effort to be active. Now, I know that not everybody can make the effort to be active. I know that it's um, you know, perfectly legitimate to say, well, man, I'm exhausted, I'm hungover, I just want to sit back and let other people play, and I just want to sort of hang and relax. And that's okay. But if you want to be a good player, uh, I think you have to sit down and you have to pay, you have to actively listen to what the other players are saying in character and about the game. You have to actively listen to the GM more so than you would at home. Uh, and you have to actively try not just uh, to have fun as yourself, but to enable the other players to have fun. Because you know, in, in a weird way, you're obligated to be, how do you put it? 
as a player at the table at a convention game, you are effectively um, a stranger at the party. Uh, and as a stranger at the party, um, you have two possible roles. Uh, you can you know, be a stranger at the party and be an outsider and float. Or you can become a minor host yourself. Uh, you can enable other people to have fun. You can enable other people to feel involved. So what you're saying is definitely get involved in the game. Well, get get involved in the game yourself. But don't hog the spotlight. And But also, yeah, make sure that every other player is involved. Try and find ways of letting other people play their roles as well. Because if you do hog the spotlight, um, you know, you are damaging the fun that other people are having. Right. I'm just saying, like... I, I know people who do try to get other people involved, but they do it in a way that keeps them in the spotlight. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, that too. That too. <laughs> so make sure other people can have their hero moments. Bill, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know if I have anything to add. That's actually a really, really apt description. Daryl? One thing that I really, 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 really try to pound into my own head because I'm bad about doing this is, and this is my experience from playing a lot of board games at conventions, is when someone's teaching game or demoing game to new people, and it's a game I know really well, I have to sometimes literally bite my tongue not to jump in and help and quote unquote help explain. Mm-hmm. It's the GM's game. Let them run the game. Right. That's a good point, especially at a convention. You know, even if even if the GM is running it wrong, yeah, it's his game. Let him do it. <laughs> now, sometimes right. though, uh, just as a counterpoint, sometimes if you are the experienced player and you're sitting next to a newbie. Uh, it's sometimes good to lean over and say, well, you know, maybe you should do this or, or your perception role is right. located here on the character sheet. You can kind of help out the GM because the GM's dealing with five or six people at the table. Yeah, but in that case, you're interacting with the player, not the GM. Yeah. Okay, good point. But that's all, that is a great thing to do. I mean, that's, that's, that's a good, that is being a good player, I would say, yeah. is definitely, you know, help, help someone else out if they're confused or if you, you know, just have a moment to kind of lean over and go, hey, uh, here's that thing. You, you may want to keep an eye on that, mm-hmm. you know, something yeah, good, like that. You know, good, good points on both, on, from both of you, which is, you know, you're not there to argue with the GM or try to hijack the game. Um, and you, you can do that accidentally very, very easily. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but at the same time, you know, that. if you are some, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know, guilty. You know, but <laughs> if, at the same time, if you are someone who is a rules guru in a particular system, by all means, if I'm standing there and I'm trying to run the game and there's someone who's never played before, oh, I'm so grateful if somebody will sit, you know, sit next to them and be there to lean over and whisper what no normal defense attack means is so that they can figure out what's on their character sheet and how to use it and why to use it. Right. Okay. Uh, we've done being a good player and we've done, you know, what you expect and how to prepare for playing in the game, that kind of a thing. Uh, let's say you're running the game. Let's say you're actually the GM. You're running the game, and you're about to sit down. Do you do you guys use any kind of checklist for explaining the rules, or do you have a checklist for, you know, I'm so-and-so, and here's my game? Yeah. Um, I used to, and I still have these, and I really need to start handing them out again. Uh, I used to have a very good two-page summary of the hero system. And I've really got to find that again because it was 
an excellent tool for newbies. Um, I also like to prepare, uh, and I hand this out before I let anyone see the character sheets. The first thing I'll put on the table are pictures of all the characters that uh, people can pick from. And the reason I do this is I want to give people a visual hook into who they're going to be playing and into you know who the other players are going to be playing. And it also is indirectly kind of a visual hook into the world. And I'll also put down on the table um, a character summary sheet that gives a little summary of who each character is uh, and a, you know, a little like one paragraph blurb about the campaign. And the reason that that's there, yeah, sure, some people are not going to read it at all, but people who are interested can quickly look through that and figure out which character they want to play without having to actually dig through the character sheets and figure out by looking, you know, at the often really difficult to figure out, you know, hero system write-ups. Um, instead, they've got a little one-paragraph blurb, oh, this guy is Superman, oh, this guy is Flash, that quickly tells them who and what they're dealing with. And then the character sheet itself, um, Bill actually made these. Uh, so this is really his baby. But Bill made some fantastic simplified hero system character sheets that hide a lot of the information that new players really don't need to have in front of them. And I like to use those whenever I'm running a convention game now because they minimize the amount of reading that the player has to do at the table before they're able to actually get into the game. And finally, right before IGM, I like to um, have a little opening speech prepared and some theme music, because I believe that theme music and a nice, solid opening speech will shock players into focusing and paying attention and give them a clear emotional line as to when the game has begun. I would love to get a recording of Robert doing these, because he, he does some really good ones. <laughs> yeah, his speeches are awesome. They'll, You'll never stop me, heroes! And <laughs> My legion of ape men with diving helmets will stop you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, he's, he's he's they're very very good. Yeah, I uh, I go through it. Like for example, oh. uh, well, I, I want to ask you about that in a second, Bill. But I do want to just quickly uh, cover something about you know explaining the rules because Robert was talking about the rules on the character sheets and things like that. I think for a lot of games, it's very easy to say, okay, this is a D twenty game or um, it's a roll under game, things like that. In games that are extremely heavy and, and, and uh, complex, I prefer, as a GM, I prefer to give the very basics and then at the beginning and then just kind of introduce some of the more advanced stuff further into the game so, as I, so I don't lose everybody in that first mm -hmm. 20 minutes, yeah. right? Because if I spend mm -hmm. 20 minutes explaining Death Watch to you, <laughs> which I easily could... Uh, it, there's a good chance you're not, you're going to be, yeah. gonna be asleep. So I spend five minutes saying, okay, it's a percentile roll under. If you look at your, your character sheet, all these numbers are just going to roll under that to succeed. Everybody gets that, right? And right. then, you know, maybe 20 minutes later, I'll say, okay, so here's some of the other abilities you can do. And then 20 minutes after that, here's some of the more advanced abilities you can do. And by then, you know, that's their first hour of the game. We're already into it and they, they grasp it as they go. That's all I'm saying. That's, that's pretty that's awesome. That's exactly how I teach games. That's exactly how I do it. It's, Here's the basic mechanics you absolutely positively have to know no matter what character you're playing. D&D example. Here's a D20. This is the one that's the D20. You roll this, and then you're going to add a number to it, and you're going to want to meet or exceed that number. Okay, this is what your class is, your class, your class, your class. Let's get started. 
And then you show them the rules in context and they'll catch it a lot faster because they, you haven't just thrown a bunch of jargon at them. Right. They see how this rule affects the game. Now, Bill was saying he had something for a checklist. So please oh, yeah. tell us what you I have. I was going to say that, uh, I have a checklist when I'm prepping the game beforehand. Um, I, I have a list. I actually literally have a list on my hard drive that I open up and I say, okay, I need to have these things when I run the game. I need to make sure that I bring, you know, I need to write the adventure. I need to make sure that all the character sheets are done. I need to make sure that uh, any props that I want to use are done. I, any maps that I want to use are done. Uh, if I'm going to use miniatures, I want to make sure the miniatures are done for, for each one of the heroes and all the bad guys. So that's a, that's a checklist for me. And I, I will literally print that out when I start writing the game and I'll scratch each one off as I go. No, I, I just wanted to quickly throw in there. I always make sure to read every character sheet thoroughly as I am designing the adventure to just to make sure that I've made a note of something cool each character could do according to what's on their sheet in the adventure ahead. So that I have an idea before we sit down, okay, this character has this skill. Let's make sure there's a chance for him to use it. Good point. Very good point. Um, and then when I run, right before I run the game, I will actually go through, I have a quick blurb about the the system that I'm using and how to read the character sheets. And I will go through each, um, and Ross and, and Robert, you guys are familiar with my character sheets, so I'll just go through, okay, the upper right-hand part of the, these are your uh, attributes, uh, this is what each one of them means. In the lower, right below that, you have your combat stats. This is what those mean. And the other side, you have your skills, your powers. And at the very bottom, you have your character description and picture. Um, and that usually takes about five minutes. I don't, as you said, Ross, don't try to get into any of the detailed rules or anything like that. Just just once you've got the basics down, just go. Uh, Daryl, do you have a checklist of any kind? Not really, because I don't really run a lot of games. I've never actually, aside from that one time, I've never run a game at a convention. Okay. Uh, so I unfortunately do not, but that's something I would definitely do just to make sure. Okay. Before I leave the hotel room, do I have this, 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 check, 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 check. I've got everything. So that way I'm not sitting at the table. Oh crap. I forgot the character. Oh, you know what? I'll, I'll tell a story. (laughs) I was running, (laughs) I was running a game for Con Jr. for the kids. I was going to run a Teen Titans game and it was essentially just a a miniatures game. I I have these Teen Titans figures that I use and it was just going to be a couple of combats and, because they're nine-year-olds, they don't have a whole lot of attention span. I was just going to have a couple of fights and, and be done with it. When I got to the convention, actually about an hour before I was going to run that game, I opened up my backpack and I was going to pull out the character sheets and the adventure and read everything and make sure I had it all, and I realized I had forgotten everything. I had nothing <laughs> except the miniatures. And the only reason I had the miniatures is because I put them in a box with the miniatures for my other games. I panicked. I had, I had no character sheets. I had no adventure. I had, I didn't have any of my maps. I didn't have anything. And I ran up to the, uh, the con junior, uh, coordinator and I said, I can't run. I have nothing. I have no, no character sheets. And he, the guy, he, he was so good. He was like, ah, they're nine years old. Forget it. Just, just write something up. They won't know the difference. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I ran back to my hotel room. I got some colored pens and I wrote up. I didn't even, I couldn't even remember the rules because I was using a new system. And so I just made something up. I just made up a whole new system for, for Teen Titans miniature combat on the fly. I showed up with no time to spare. I walked into the room and they're like, Oh, your kids are already sitting at the table. I'm glad you're here. You know, and I sat down and I said, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm just going to run this. And I, 
I ended up running. I, I was like, and uh, suddenly uh, robots come out of this rocket ship. I had a rocket ship from another game that I was running that weekend, and I put the rocket ship down, and I pulled out some robots. I'm like, then the robots attack. <laughs> and and the big finale of the game was I pulled out my little plush bunny, which I, I bring to all my conventions. <laughs> and I said, and suddenly a gigantic bunny shows up, and he's terrorizing, he's smashing buildings. He's like Bunnyzilla. The kids loved it. They had so much fun, and they had no idea that I was flying by the seat of my pants. You know, that's a that's a really good segue, though, into damage control. Like, what can go wrong? <laughs> what are some What are some things that have gone wrong, and how did you? You know, that's a good. That's a really great one. Like, you know, I forgot my stuff. Here's how I handled it. Um, what about you, Robert? You got any stories about damage control? Well, I've got a story about damage control going wrong, um, which I don't know if it's educational or not. It's not even that funny necessarily, but it is something that I thought you know I thought about a lot afterwards. And I have to edit it slightly because it's somewhat worse than what I can present here. Um, I sat down at the table, uh, and I had a team at that point of international superheroes for this particular game. And the reason that they were international was I liked the idea. Uh, this is my Asian action superheroes game. And I liked the idea of using that game as a teaching tool to let people, you know, just let people get a little taste of the fact that superheroes are, in fact, uh, something that people all over the world make movies about and make television shows about and give people a little taste of the superheroes from various countries. When a player sat down uh, and started, yeah, middle-aged guy, and started doing the most insanely racist, sexist, sexualized presentation. You promise you'd never talk about this again, Robert. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how I met Bill. Um, Of one of the the characters. Um, And, yeah, I was, you know, taken aback. Uh, And I I asked him about it directly, and he said, well, you got to understand, I just hate Korean people. (laughs) And (laughs) just just this expression of open, oh, wait, you got to understand, I just hate Korean people. That is so random. (laughs) Wow. And And wrong, just FYI. Just this bizarre, bizarre expression of casual, you know, casual racism. Um, I live in rural Texas, and no one's that casual about it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, I've got this other... I've got a group of very nice players at the table, and they want a game, and I want to run this game. And I've got this Schmendrick here, who is obviously um, just, you know, playing in order to screw with the other people at the table. Uh, and my incorrect form of damage control for trying to deal with him was I simply did not look or speak to him, look at him or speak to him or acknowledge anything he was saying for, you know, a good chunk of, you know, the rest of the game. And finally, he actually did come into line because simply being shunned so completely when he was, you know, to be fair to him, there for a good time. You know, it, it looked to me at first like he was just there to be an ass, to screw with us. Uh, but no, he was there to have a good time and to play. And when it was that clear that no one was going to play along with his bizarre decision, uh, he came into line and he played the character coherently 
for the remaining chunk of the game. And once he stopped acting like such a complete schmuck, uh, I turned back and, you know, continued playing with him. I don't really know what I should have done other than what I did at the time. I just know that what I did at the time was probably not the correct choice. Well, I think as as gamers, uh, we tend to be very inclusive. We tend to be very forgiving. And especially in an environment like where everybody's sitting at the table, you know, in your game, you, I know I feel kind of some social pressure to just kind of include people, no right. matter what. Right. And Sean Patrick Fannin, a good friend of mine, he's, he's a guy who kind of helped me get through my period of this because I, I just don't like to confront people about that kind of thing. And he's like, listen, man, this is Sean. You know, I'm, I'm doing my best Sean impression. These people paid money to be <laughs> in your game. That means they are not supposed to put up with bullshit. <laughs> mm-hmm. And by that, he means, you know, excessive table talking, uh, unacceptable behavior like being racist or being really super fucking loud, <laughs> uh, like has happened before uh, in one of my games. And, you know, the right answer in those situations is probably twofold. Like the first answer, and again, I'm not saying for every game and for every group, but just in my personal opinion, probably the first level is to kind of, you know, snap your fingers and go, hey, hey, buddy, pay attention, you know, or to, you're too loud or you you can't be racist at my table, right? <laughs> yeah. It's just a, a quick, a, a, a quick, like, you know, boom like that. Now, if the problem continues and gets, and gets or gets worse or just, you know, there's nothing happening, the escalation that I would say is ask the guy out, out of the room or into the hallway, say, hey, you know, I need to talk to you for a minute so that you're not shaming him in front of the whole group, but take him somewhere a little bit private and be like, hey, man, here's the deal. This is what you need to do or else I'm kicking you out. Because, yeah, maybe that guy also paid to be in your game, but it's in, in, in my opinion, and I think Sean's also is the majority rules. You know, if, if most of those people are there to have a good time and one dude's just being a jerk, get rid of him. Because the group is, everybody else is there to play. Right. Right? That's that's my opinion. That's, I think that's what Sean was saying. So there's that. I've got a story where, in which I was running a game, and one of the players was a young guy, maybe maybe 15. And uh, this was a fantasy game, and he was playing the, the group's thief. And it the the character was kind of like Aladdin. You know, he was, he was a street rat and he was a thief, but he stole to survive. He, he had a great, a big heart and all that sort of thing. But this kid was playing him like he was a larcenous little shit. <laughs> he was trying to steal from the party and he was hiding things and he was sneaking away and stuff like that. And after about an hour or an hour and a half of this, uh, we took a short break, just have a, a bio break. And I took him aside and I said, you know, you are really starting to bother the other players. And I don't think that you're playing this character in the spirit that the character is supposed to be. He's supposed to be a good hearted thief. I mean, he's a thief, but he's a good hearted thief and he loves his friends and he'd do anything for them. And you're, you're sitting here stealing from them. And after I did that, after I took, took him aside uh, and spoke with him privately away from the other players, like you said, Ross, uh, he straightened up and he was a, a reasonably good player after that. A lot of people may not know that they're acting out if, because that may be how they play at home and that may be what they think it, everyone plays like. So if you warn them, Hey, you're doing this, then yeah, they're, they'll either shape up or they're doing it on purpose because yeah. you've already warned them that this isn't acceptable. If they're doing it on purpose. They're trying 
to ruin the fun for everyone else sitting at that table. Which is why you have the taser. Well, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And the key takeaway for me is, uh, you know, don't, yeah, maybe confrontation isn't your thing. Maybe it's, you know, uh, socially awkward, you know, for us because we're very inclusive people as, as gamers, but try as the GM to take some responsibility, step up and do the right thing. That's all I'm going to say about that. Because with a trivial amount of cash comes great responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it's going to be last call here at the Gamers Tavern. The Imperial Guard are going to come shut us down pretty soon. So let's uh, once again talk to our guests briefly about what their latest thing is, maybe where we can find them on the webs. Robert, uh, do you have a latest thing? Nope. (laughs) <laughs> no, no. Do you have a Skyrim mod or something that you want to tell people about? Well, I'd like anyone who has time or energy, anyone who's a fan of Skyrim, please take a look at Anna's NPCs and the Andoniel Companion, both of which are spectacular and wonderful and will greatly enrich your Skyrim experience. Um, I think you know I'm contributing to both, and they're wonderful projects. I'm really enjoying them. Uh, the Terran Meru ca- uh, companion is going to be released very soon, uh, which I'm co-writing with my good friend Michael Butchin. And Terran Meru is a Dunmer companion uh, who is going to be part of the Anna's NPCs project and who is going to have things to say on every step of your journey, not just through the main quest, but every step of your journeys uh, through um, Dragonborn and, you know, and your journey through the mage quests as well. Uh, so, you know, those are projects that are really worth checking out if you're a Skyrim fan. And where can we find those on the interwebs? Uh, you can find those on the Skyrim Nexus. All right. Thank you, Robert. And Bill, what's your latest thing? Uh, my latest thing is going to be the Widening Gyre Savage Worlds Edition, which, with any luck, uh, will be released at Gen Con. Uh, that's what I'm hoping, at least. Are either of you gentlemen going to be at Gen Con? No. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so neither of you are running games at Gen Con? Uh, nope. No. That's a bummer. Yeah. All right. When's the next but time going- we can find you to run some games? I'm going to be at Tacticon. Fantastic. Robert, are you going to be running games anytime soon at a convention? Or? Well, I'm definitely going to be at the next Genghis Khan. Okay. <laughs> so next year, look for uh, Robert Thorpe. Next year. On behalf of uh, Daryl and myself, we want to be uh, say thank you very much for joining us. We're extremely grateful to have you guys uh, share all your knowledge on running games. Our pleasure. Well, thank you very much for having me. And uh, do you have any final thoughts on running games at conventions? Try it. If you've never done it before, yeah. give it a whirl. It's fun. It's a very good and fine and noble thing. You should go do it immediately. Daryl? I just had one thing I wanted to add to everything that Robert and Bill have said. We joked a little bit about the trivial monetary costs. One thing you need to remember is this is also a time investment. Mm-hmm. These people are taking four, two, four, six, eight hours out of the very limited time they have to go to all the panels, to see everything on the floor, to get autographs, to sit down and play a game with you, or you're sitting down with these people who have taken out. Be respectful of that and have fun. And I have nothing else I can add because I think those are all excellent, excellent points. All right, so once again, uh, thank you for listening to the Gamer's Tavern, and may all your hits be crits. 
So, that about wraps things up for this week. Even though I feel like complete and total shit, I promised I would do comments, so damn it, I'm doing comments. From Twitter, we have Kevin C. Mason, also known as At Art of Paint, who says, Thank you, Gamers Tavern, for relapsing my Shadowrun addiction. Last time I touched it was 3rd edition. Now I need to go shopping. Uh, make sure to visit our affiliate sponsor, Drive Through RPG, through the links on Gamers Tavern in order to help support the show while you're feeding your addiction. Uh, that is, if Twitter user at Daffy Rocks, who has a cool Harry Dresden avatar picture, by the way, didn't get to you first when he replied, I would send you all of mine, but shipping sucks. And that's just awesome. Gamers Tavern bringing gamers together. I want to see more of that. And we got one more from Twitter. Uh, it's from Jeremy Compton and Jen, uh, at Jer in Jen C, who says, Thanks for the podcasts. They're great entertainment while I work my day job. When is the Galarian setting podcast? Okay, I need to dispel something that I've heard people say about me. I am not anti-Pathfinder. This mostly comes from my Anacool News column. But I, I, I love Pathfinder. Like I said, addition wars are bullshit. But there's three reasons why we haven't done Galarian yet. First, Galarian seems to me to be like one of those catch-all kind of settings like we had when we were kids. You know, this continent's Dark Sun, and this one's Forgotten Realms, and this one's Ravenloft. And you spread them all over the same planet so you can do crossovers. And I I'm sure many of you are screaming at me right now because of how wrong I am, which leads me to reason number two. I don't really know the setting that well, because every time I played Pathfinder, it was either in my own setting, uh, the GM's homebrew setting, or in Greyhawk. So, uh, yeah, I've got to study up before we can do the episode. And finally, reason number three is there are a lot of settings to get through. Uh, let's see, Ravenloft, Greyhawk, Blackmore, Dark Sun, Eberron. That's off the top of my head. And I'd like to point out that we never said we were restricting this to Dungeons & Dragons settings. Now, did we? So, Galarian's definitely on our list, but it might take a little while to get there as we work through a lot of the other ones. So let's move over to Facebook where we have Enrique Velquez, Velazquez. I apologize for butchering that. <clears throat> uh, but he said, listening to Gamers Tavern, they have a birthright campaign setting episode, totally getting flashbacks. Man, I loved that setting. And I'm going to tell you right now, Enrique, so does Ross. So expect a lot more of that. Uh, and we also are working out plans for doing a little uh, game table series set in Birthright. Uh, we're just trying to work out some of the logistics right now. Uh, and we have another comment from Facebook from Lucas Christ, who wrote, Definitely one of the best gaming podcasts out there. Got it through the Shadowrun podcast, episode 8. And I've been hooked ever since. Keep it up, guys. Well, thank you very much. I, I think the Shadowrun episode might have been six, but I'd, I'd honestly have to go look to be able to, to know for sure. But thank you very much. We're going to keep trying, and we've got a lot of cool stuff uh, coming up, so watch for announcements soon. And finally, we're going to go back to our home at GamersTavern.org, where Muscular Beaver writes... Notice you put a link to the Shadowrun 20 questions from Dump Shock, but you could also find them in Runner's Companion for 4th, and I would guess when the 5th edition character options book comes out, you might find it there too. You know, uh, this is uh, back a couple episodes ago, we are talking about uh, how to make great characters. We mentioned the Shadowrun 20 questions as a great way to get a background for your character, and lamented that they weren't in the 4th edition and 5th edition core rulebooks like they were for 1st through 3rd. And to be honest, 
I never noticed him in Runner's Companion. Uh, I, I haven't had a chance to double check this. I'm going to take uh, uh, Muscular Beaver's word on this, but I probably missed it because I'm so used to it being in the core book. And when I get books like Runner's Companion or any of those other books like that, I'll read them through once, but then every single other time I get them, I'll just skip those first few chapters, the introductory chapters, because it's all stuff I kind of already know. So I probably have been skipping over those 20 questions for years now. But uh, thank you very much. And if you've got that book, check that out. Uh, that's a great way to work on your character backgrounds. Finally, we have Corey Gilman, who said of our first convention survival guide episode, sleep, eat, shower. Those are essential. Good show, guys. Yes, those are essential. As I said last week, do as I say, not as I do. I, I, I got I took care of the shower things, the eating and sleeping, not so much, and I'm sure as hell not doing that again. Uh, as much as Comic Palooza kicked my ass, I'm following those rules at Gen Con. All-nighters, I'm too old for that shit. <laughs> so if you would like to leave your comments, you can always follow us on Twitter at Gamers Tavern PC, as in podcast, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Gamers Tavern, Rate us on iTunes or go to the website at gamerstavern.org. And while you're on our site, you can read our blog entries, visit our store at gamerstavern.org slash store, or you can visit our sponsors to help support the show. Next week, we have guests Lee Langston and Nathan Dowdell joining us to talk about player character death. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 license. Please see the show notes for music copyrights. Until next time, the tavern is closed. Have you been looking for a dark fantasy RPG setting? Are you interested in seeing a new take on the action horror genre? Then you should check out Accursed. Accursed is a setting for the Savage Worlds RPG created by me, Ross Watson, and my good friends Jason Marker and John Dunn. It is a world where the heroes are monsters who fight for redemption against the witches who have conquered their land. To find out more about Accursed, search for Accursed on drivethroughrpg.com. Accursed is now on sale there and in many other fine retailers for gaming PDFs. Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy Accursed.